over these summer weeks. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Great, so Nick is uh, now going to come and bring the reading to us before uh, we sing again. Well, good morning, everybody. Is this microphone coming? Yeah, great. Um, so please do have a Bible uh, in front of you. We're going we're gonna to read Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22 is one of the, the mega psalms of, of the book of Psalms. Um, so it might help if you've got a seatbelt to fasten it. And um, you might find that um, oxygen mask comes from the ceiling if we get into trouble halfway through. But let's read Psalm 22 together. Psalm 22, for the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Refer him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Amen. We'll sing one more song together before Nick comes to uh, open up the word to us. Let's sing, show us Christ appropriately.
seated and please do have your Bibles open at Psalm 22. Get the PowerPoint up. You'll need to click into the PowerPoint. Yep. Good. The cross. The cross for us is central. Um, it is the event in history which has secured for us forgiveness and salvation. Take away the cross. And what is left? Nothing other than judgment for our sins. But, and you'll need to click into uh, the PowerPoint, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which is why we love the cross. But I want to ask um, three questions. Uh, three questions that I believe this psalm asks us as those who claim to find their hope, or our, our hope in the sufferings of Christ. And the first is this. Is it right for us to claim to love the cross, but not genuinely love and care for others, especially those who are not like us? That might mean those from a different ethnic background, those who speak a different language, but it might mean those from a different economic or educational background. What does God think about it if we look up to the cross but look down on others? The second question is this. Is it right for us to claim to love the cross yet not care deeply about the lordship of Christ in our lives? Can a, can a deep appreciation for what Christ suffered sit alongside a casualness when it comes to obedience? I'll call him saviour but I'll leave the, the Lord part to, to others. And the third question, is a slightly different question. How does the cross change the way we see our sufferings? Uh, we've thought a lot about the area of suffering in the last few weeks as we've gone through the book of Ruth. Uh, Luke reflected uh, on the fact that many of us are not strangers to the trials that life throws at us. But how does the cross help us in the day-to-day -day grind of life? Three questions. How does the cross impact our love for others, our obedience, and help us in our suffering? I believe that this psalm answers these three questions. And as, um, as we read through the psalm, you would have noticed that it is a psalm full of suffering, full of hardship, full of trial. But whose suffering? Well, you'll see in the heading that it was a psalm written by King David. The great, 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 great grandson of Ruth and Boaz, of Naomi. We've seen in the last few weeks that this was a family who were not strangers to hardship. But now David writes, in the midst of his own suffering, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it may be that here David is reflecting back on his experience when he had to flee from King Saul. You remember King Saul, he was the first king of Israel. He started well, but then he chose to do things his own way and he was rejected by God. David was chosen in his place and as David became more and more powerful, Saul became more and more jealous, which ended up in David having to flee for his life because Saul wanted to kill him. Uh, we read in 1 Samuel 21, the, the reference there is wrong on the screen, but the verse is correct. We read of David on the run. 
fleeing to a foreign land. And we read that David was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. That's where he fled to. He fled to a, a foreign land. He was afraid. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. While he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, leaving marks on the doors of the gates and letting saliva run down his beard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? You can imagine David praying that as he's on the run, fearing for his life. Later, after David had become king, he had to flee for his life again. This time it was a result of his own personal sin and failing. His son Absalom rebels against him and manages to turn a huge part of the the nation of Israel against him. And, And again, David has to flee for his life. And maybe verses 6 to 8 in the psalm are are a kind of an experience of that. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl their insults at me, shaking their heads. In, In 2 Samuel 15, David should have been in the palace dressed in royal robes, yet he find him, finds himself climbing up the, mountain, the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his, he was barefoot walking in the dust. In the next chapter, we read that as he flees, a, a man named Shimei, son of Gera, follows him, cursing him uh, and pelting David and the others with him with stones. And again, you can imagine David writing, I am a worm, not a man, scorned, despised, mocked, insulted. Now, as we read this first section of the psalm, it's helpful to see how David responds to his suffering. He does three things. He looks back at what God had done in the past. He looks at what God had done in his own life. And then he looks forward. He looks forward to the suffering of one who will come in the future. So first he looks back, he says, he says, yet I'm suffering, but yet David is taking his eyes off himself and fixing his eyes on the Lord who saves. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. Verse three, you are the one Israel praises. In our ancestors, in you our ancestors put their trust, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David, in the midst of his suffering, reminds himself of who God is and what God has done in the past. Maybe in his mind he's thinking about how God saved Noah from the flood through the ark. Certainly in his mind he'll be thinking about the exodus when God rescued his people from Egypt. But he looks back because if God saved then... He can save now. If God saved those to whom he gave gospel promises, he will save me now to whom those promises hold true. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So he looks back. Then he also looks back at, or he looks at God's work in his own life. Verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. This is his Philippians 1, 6 moment. Do you know that verse? Lord, you have started a good work in me. 
you will carry it on to completion. Maybe in his mind at a times when God helped him while he was a shepherd looking after his sheep and he had to uh, fend off the lions and the bears. Maybe he's reflecting back to when, with the Lord's help, he defeated Goliath, the, the, the champion of the enemies of God. If God was with me yesterday, he will be with me today. And if he is with me today, he will be with me for all times because God is not in the business of leaving or forsaking. He has started a good work. He will complete it, even if that means allowing me to go through times of suffering. Even if that suffering is going to carry on until I see him face to face. Even if that suffering is a result of my own failure and weakness. So he looks back. He looks at what God has done in his own life. But then David does something very interesting. He takes his eyes off his own circumstances and looks to the future. He looks to one who is going to suffer in a far greater and more profound way than he would ever suffer. David looks to the cross. He looks to Jesus, the one who would come a thousand years after him but one in whom he found his rest. Because however much we can root uh, the first part of the psalm in David's own experience, as the psalm progresses, David describes suffering far greater than anything he ever experienced in his life. As a prophet, he is looking forward to Christ and speaking of his sufferings. And as he does so, there are three things that we learn about the cross. First, it was predicted with precision. Now, when you, when you play sport, you need a game plan. You need a set of tactics that's going to help you defeat your opponent. So whether you're Gareth Southgate or Andy Murray, without a strategy, you're not going to win. And the thing about sport is that one strategy or one game plan often isn't enough. Plan A is good when things are going well, but when things start to go pear-shaped, you need a plan B, you need a plan C. But when it comes to God's plan of salvation, there was only ever one plan, the cross. And we see that in this psalm, in the level of detail that David writes about the cross, even though it was a thousand years before Jesus suffered. First, we see the events surrounding the cross detailed out. I hope you can read that. I'm sorry if the writing's a bit small. But verse 7 in the psalm, All who see me mock me. Christ was insulted and mocked both at his trial and when he was on the cross. The crown of thorns forced on his head was intended as mockery. The words in verse 8 are used verbatim by the religious leaders as they see him crucified. Mark 15.31 says, In the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law uh, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let me read to you as well, Matthew 27 from verse 41. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down off the cross and we will believe in him. Did they know that they were quoting Psalm 22? Verse 11. 
there is no one to help. You know, when David was on the run, most of the time there were others around him supporting him. But Christ was totally abandoned. When he was arrested, Mark notes that everyone deserted him and fled. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Bashan was a region known for its lush pasture. And so a bull that was raised in Bashan was, was known to be particularly healthy and particularly strong. Acts 4.27, reflecting back on the events of the cross, tells us that Jesus was surrounded by powerful groups. The Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities, all the people, all conspiring against him, wanting him dead. Verse 13, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. You know, during his trial, the Gospels talk of Jesus being flogged by Pilate. Roman flogging was designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain without killing a person. The whip would include fish hooks, pieces of metal or bone that was designed to tear down into the flesh, down to the bone. When Jesus was flogged, it was like a lion eating into his flesh. And then verse, from verse 14, we're given details that describe the crucifixion in brutal yet accurate detail. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. You know, when someone was crucified, their hands were nailed to the vertical part of the cross and when the cross was lifted up, the body would pull on the arms, which would cause the arms to be dislocated from their joints. All my bones are out of joint. Then in the second half of verse 14, we read, my heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. You know, aside of the, of the stress of what Jesus would have gone through leading up to his trial, the loss of blood from his body following the flogging would have put a huge strain on his heart. In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel interviews a, a medical consultant called Alexandra Metherell. And asking him, he asked him about the details of the crucifixion and commenting on the Roman flogging. He comments that he says this. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they could be crucified. At the least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock. Metherell had thrown in a medical term I didn't know. What does hypovolemic shock mean? I asked. Hypo means low. Vol refers to volume and emic means blood. So hypovolemic shock means the person is suffering the effects of losing a large amount of blood, the doctor explained. This does four things. First, the heart races to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. You remember what happened as Jesus carried the cross? Someone else had to carry it for him. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine uh, to maintain the volume that's left. And fourth, the body becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace the lost blood volume. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. And interestingly, the very next verse, Psalm 22 verse 15 says this, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Huge 
blood loss resulting in huge strain on his heart and excessive thirst. Exactly what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross. His thirst being recorded in the Gospels. I am thirsty, says Jesus. And if we're in any doubt that David is predicting the sufferings of Christ, verse 16, we read of the, the nails that pierce his hands and feet as he's nailed to the cross. In verse 17, his nakedness. And verse 18, the fact that others would divide his clothes and cast lots for his garments. Again, something which the Gospels tell us happened to Jesus. Can you see that the cross was planned with pinpoint accuracy? God's plan of salvation, plan A. But here's the second thing we learn about the cross. It was predicted with precision and it was necessarily shameful. When reaching out to gospel, well, sorry, when reaching out to Muslims with the gospel, um, they vehemently oppose the cross. Um, it's not just that the Quran rejects that Jesus died on the cross, which it does, but it's to do with this question. Why would God allow Jesus, someone so precious to him, to go through such shameful and humiliating suffering? It's a good question, actually. The, the, the crucifixion was intended to be deeply humiliating. The mocking, the taunting, the loneliness, the degrading of the body, the nakedness, the brutal suffering. It wasn't just a punishment for an individual, but a message to a, to a wider society. If you dishonour Rome, we will dishonour you. Shame us, we will shame you. Yet we know Jesus was without sin. He had done nothing wrong against God, against the Romans, against his people. He was without blame. But here is the thing. The cross had to be deeply shameful because Jesus was dying in our place. He was taking on and paying for our shameful sin. The problem with sin is that we don't really recognise how bad it is most of the time. You know, we get it when we think about the big sins, you know, the murder, the rape, the acts of terrorism, the racism, all that kind of stuff. But the sins that are closer to home, like greed, anger, lust, jealousy, they just don't seem as bad. The effects don't seem to be as bad. You know, we say to ourselves, well, I didn't murder anybody. And also there's that, that perceived reward in it for me. Uh, you know, it makes me feel good. And that desire blinds us to how bad sin is. Just like in the Garden of Eden, the fruit was, was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. However, what sin does, it turns us away from God, who is the giver of life. It dishonours him. And if we turn away from the only source of life, it can only end in death. If we turn away from the God who has, has brought us honour through his love, it can only result in shame. But what is so bad about sin is that sin is never personal. It always affects others, causing them to turn from God, the giver of life, turning them towards death and shame. Think of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. What did they do? They just, ate, they just ate a piece of fruit. Insignificant in one sense. 
yet the effects were monumental, bringing death and shame to the whole human race. And our sin affects others. Even the sins that we think are personal and secret that no one else knows about, they will impact others. The other thing about sin is that it is a description of how we reject God, the one who has honoured us and who loved us. You know, when we sin, we don't just reject God's best for our lives, but we reject God himself. Sin, it's an act of rebellion against our creator, who's full of love. Imagine walking into Buckingham Palace, and I don't recommend you do this, and the queen is sitting there on her throne, and we walk up to her, and we grab her by the scruff of the neck, drag her off the throne, onto the floor, we pick up her crown, put it on our own heads and sit down where she was. How shameful would that be? But when we sin, it is just like that. We shove God off the throne and plant ourselves in the place that is rightfully his. Now, even as I explain this, uh, I still struggle to understand how shameful sin is. And maybe that's true for you too. But if we want to really understand how bad the problem is, All we need to do is look at the solution. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus went through for us. Look at the insults, the brutality, the agony. The cross is the price for our sin. And that's why it had to be so shameful. But it's also why the cross is so beautiful to the Christian believer. Jesus, God himself, was dying in my place, taking the full punishment for my shameful, wicked sin. Like the hymn says, My sin, oh, the thought, the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist says of Jesus, You laid me in the dust, dogs surround me, they pierced my hands and my feet. So that, and this is the third thing we learn from the psalm that the cross shows us, so that it might result in multi-dimensional blessings. In verse 22, you get a change of gear. Uh, We leave behind the bulls, the dogs, the lions, the suffering, and the psalm changes. It it, it transforms from the minor key to the major key. It it leaves the cries of help and despair behind and we, we, we come across songs of praise as we see what the Messiah will bring about through his suffering. And there are multiple blessings. Verse 22, the cross results in a community who praise, fear, honour and revere the Lord. Why? Because of verse 24, and this is a really key verse. Verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. The sufferings of Jesus on the cross in all their brutal and shameful horror were not despised. They were accepted. They were valued by God. They achieved something beautiful. Every drop of blood shed, every tear, every moment of pain endured by Jesus has won something great and precious for us. The cross brings us close to God as a community, verse 23. It gives us eternal life, verse 26. There is forgiveness and righteousness bestowed upon us, verse 31. And the cross brings blessings to people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. 
Look at verse 26. You have the, the poor eating and being satisfied. And in verse 9, you have the rich as well joining in that same feast. The poor, the rich, all together in one family. And then verse 27, you have the, the ends of the earth, all the families of nations being brought together, worshipping and bowing before Jesus. What a beautiful thing. And the more the cross impacts our community, the more people of different nations and backgrounds will be brought together to be members of that same family of God. And that is why there is no place for racism or prejudice in the church. If we claim to love the gospel, if we claim to understand the cross and what Christ has achieved, we will be pursuing what the world cannot truly offer. People from all nations in one family, loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another, feasting together, rich and poor. And actually, if we want to uproot racism in wider society, the most effective way to do it is to tell people about the cross. But did you notice too the, the emphasis on obedience? Verse 27. All the nations, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. This is the reason the community loves and cares for one another. They are bowing down at the feet of Jesus. The cross turns as it brings us back to the Lord in repentance and faith. We're brought back into a relationship with the king of the universe. But we bow down before him. We acknowledge his rule in our place. We don't drag him off the throne. And then as a result, his love impacts our lives and impacts others through us. And that's why you cannot separate Jesus' salvation work and his lordship. The two come together. But how does the cross help us in our suffering? Now you may know that the first verse of the psalm was quoted by Jesus when he was on the cross. Mark 15:33 tells us that at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon and at three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now explaining this verse we often point out that well Jesus was sinless he was in perfect relationship with the Father but when he was on the cross, the relationship changed. The father's love turned into anger as my sin, as our sin was poured upon Jesus. At that moment, he was cut off from the love of his father. So cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken on the cross. And that is true. But there is another reason why Jesus quotes this, uh, the first verse of this psalm. And that is because he knew the psalm. He knew how the psalm started. He knew how the psalm described his sufferings. But he also knew how the psalm ended. He knew of the multi-dimensional blessings that would come from his suffering as he died and rose again. Verse 30, generations of people from many nations saved and serving him. Future generations being told about him uh, in beautiful acts of evangelism. Verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, forgiveness spanning the nations, spanning the generations, sorry. 
And that's why Jesus quotes verse 1 when he was on the cross, because he knew how the psalm ends. He knew how his suffering was going to end in victory. And notice how the psalm does end. What are the last words? He has done it. He has achieved all of this forgiveness, eternal life. The nations brought together. And surely those words, he has done it, were in Jesus' mind when on the cross he cried out, it is finished, when he gave up his final breath. And that is helpful for us. Because what is true about Jesus in his sufferings is also true about us as those who follow the Lord Jesus. Just as blessing came out of what Christ went through on the cross, as those who have turned to the Lord, as those who have bowed before him and know his forgiveness, we can be sure that God will bring good from the things, the bad things that he allows us to go through. Of course, when, when we're in the midst of, of trial, it can seem like God's forsaken us. It can seem like nothing good whatsoever will come out of what we're going through. But he will bring good from it. Every moment of pain, every moment of weakness and sorrow, not a moment of our suffering will be wasted. And there will be a day when we look back and we can declare, Jesus, he has done it. You know, it can be very hard to understand why God allows us to go through hard times but he knows what he's doing and he will use it for our good and make us more like Christ and get us ready for eternity. And that is why we love the cross. It unites us from different nations. It brings us back into a relationship with, with our loving creator and saviour. And it helps us in our suffering knowing that God will bring good from what is bad. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in faith he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We thank you that he was willing to go through the, the brutal and shameful um, suffering of the cross. But we thank you that you did not despise or scorn the suffering of the afflicted one. Thank you that you have brought out of his sufferings the fact that he died and rose again. Thank you that we have life in him. Thank you that you brought us together from many nations. Please help us to love one another. Please help us to, to constantly be bowing down before the Lord Jesus, acknowledging him as Lord and Saviour. And Lord, we pray that the cross would be impacting Edmonton and, and, and our world, our nation, more and more. Jesus is our only hope. Our city, our country needs Jesus. Father, we thank you in the name of, uh, in the name of our Saviour. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing. Uh, please stand and we're going to sing um, our next song. Jesus paid it all. What a